Well, we're going to have our Bible reading just now, and we are in these evenings uh, going through the book of Romans, and uh, sometimes you'll go to conferences, and uh, there'll be a series of four evenings in Romans, and they'll often go Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. These are the, the sort of core chapters of this uh, core book, this great book. So we're getting into uh, great, familiar, but just wonderful parts of the Bible uh, over these evenings. So Romans chapter 5, and this evening we're going to look at the first 11 verses, the first half of uh, this chapter. Uh, If you've got one of the Red Pew Bibles, uh, it's page 1132. It's on the screen there. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom He has given us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man somebody might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Amen. We trust that God will bless to us His Word, give us understanding of it and encouragement through it as we look at it in a moment or two. Lovely. Well, let's turn together to Romans chapter 5. Probably going to be particularly helpful as we go through Romans for you to have a Bible in front of you because uh, it is pretty uh, dense in some ways and and, uh, easier to see where it's all going if you have uh, the text open in front of you. So that's page 1132 if you've got a pew Bible. Um, uh, Page 1132 in the uh, red NIVs. So the question here is, is it worth being a Christian? Is it worth being a Christian? Maybe you sort of uh, stumbled into the service online, or you're, you're here and you're asking that question. You're saying, I wonder, uh, is there something in this? Would it be worth it for me to be a Christian? What's the value of being a Christian? Maybe it's a question that you're asking uh, because you've had a difficult week. You've, you, maybe some of the difficulties that you've had have been caused by the fact that you are a Christian. You've been seeking to stand for the Lord, maybe in a difficult environment and it's been hard, and you come in here tonight a little bit bruised and battered, and you're going, oh, I wonder, is it really worth it? 
Or maybe you've just not really thought about that question, and, and you know if somebody were to ask you, you'd struggle to say more than a simple sort of, yes, I think so. Well, tonight in Romans 5, I think we're going to be able to see why being a Christian is so important and what benefits it brings. Now, let's say just a word about how we've got to this point, or at least how Paul's got to this point. The Apostle Paul is writing to Christians in Rome. He has never been there. He's never met these people, or at least the majority of them. He's planning a visit, and he is outlining the gospel before he gets there. And he's wanting to make sure when he arrives, God willing, in the future, they're standing firm on the basics of the faith, and he wants them to know what to expect whenever he turns up. And so he outlines the gospel. It's one of the great books in the Bible that does that. And he begins by outlining our problems, or particularly Romans chapter 1, that no matter who we are, we are sinners before a holy God. We've turned away from God, uh, and uh, we should be worshipers of him, but we tend to place our worship just about anywhere else. And so his conclusion, as he builds up to chapter 3, is that uh, there is no one righteous, not even one, no one who is acceptable to God in and of themselves. It's a huge problem for every single member of the human race. It is that we are guilty before a holy God. And this is our biggest issue. This is your neighbor's biggest issue. Uh, But he says, God has acted. He has worked through Jesus Christ in order to make us right with him. He does this by declaring us to be righteous in the right. He justifies us. You might know that that word uh, justify and, and, and righteous, they come from the sort of same original word family. And contrary to what we might think if we were just figuring it out by ourselves, this righteousness does not come through our own efforts. One of the things that we begin to learn as we uh, begin to understand the Christian faith is that our religious hunches tend to be wrong. Certainly before we're Christians, we sort of tend to think things, and then we realize, no, no, that's not the way it works at all. We need God to actually speak into us and to show us how things really are. And though we might think that we need to earn a right standing with God, because after all, we do that in pretty much every other area of life, don't we? You know, what you put in, you get out, and and all that sort of thing. Well, contrary to that basic sort of principle, Our right standing with God is not something that we earn, but it is something that God gives and something that we receive by faith. And Paul argues, he uses the the example of Abraham in the Old Testament to say this is how God has always worked. It's not that if you were a believer in the Old Testament, you worked your way into God's good books, and if you were in the New Testament, then you got it as a gift. Some people think it's like that, but, but it's not like that. No, God has always given salvation as a gift to be received by faith, whether you were an Old Testament believer or a New Testament believer. If you're right with God, it is through faith and not by your own efforts. Justification is by faith. Now, what does that mean? What what, what are the implications of that? And and that's what Paul is going to unpack for us over uh, the next chapters. These chapters 5 to 8, especially as we've said, are some of the best-known chapters of this book. They're just packed full of marvelous truths about what God has done for us and the benefits of belonging to Him. And often whenever people are preaching through these 
chapters, they slow down and do a couple of verses at a time. And well, we'd sort of love to do that, but we're going to keep going at at least this sort of pace of about half a chapter uh, at a time, all being well. Uh, So what what does Paul say as we look at these first 11 verses? Well, let's look at verse 1. And the big theme here is peace. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The therefore, of course, ties this into everything that Paul has said up to this point. He's saying, in the light of all of this, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amazing and really important. The peace that Paul is talking about here is is not what we would sometimes call maybe peace of mind, that sort of subjective feeling that that all is okay. Now, there is a, a biblical uh, peace of mind, as it were, the peace of God. But, but here, this peace is the peace largely that we would long for if we were at hostility or at war with someone. It's, it's when someone lays down their weapons. It's that sort of peace. And it might surprise us to, to realize that before we become Christians, we are not neutral, but, but we are enemies of God. It's not how we, it's not how we think about Him. We, we maybe go through life sort of ignoring Him. Uh, you, you know the way that you, you, you sort of maybe ignore someone in Tesco's, you know? You, you sort of see someone and go, oh, I don't really have time for that now. I'll nip up the nappy aisle here just to, to get rid of them and, and, and so on. And then you meet them in the, ve- the fruit and vegetables, you know. Uh, but but, but so, so sometimes we, we sort of think, well, I'm not hostile towards God. I just don't want to bother with Him. But that is hostility towards God because we owe Him everything. Um, so, so, so we are enemies of God. And, and when we become Christians, we are justified. We're made right with Him, and so we have peace with Him. It's not just the feeling of peace. It's the fact of peace, new relationship with Him. And of course, this is His doing. Sometimes, maybe in an older generation, you'll hear someone say, I've made my peace with God. Well, we sort of know what they're saying, but of course, that's really the absolutely wrong way around. We don't make peace with God. God makes peace with us through Jesus. And before we sort of rush through this, because we are moving fairly quickly through it, we need to, to pause and think what an amazing thing this is. These, are, these should be some of the most, high, if you're a highlighter, these should be some of the most highlighted verses in your Bible, the places where your, your attention is drawn time after time. We desperately need to be at peace with God. The prospect of meeting a holy God when we are not at peace with Him is too dreadful for us to contemplate. And so my old minister in Aberdeen, William Still, he, he wrote a book called Towards Spiritual Maturity, and the opening line in it is this, the fundamental blessing of salvation is peace. It's the biggest thing that God gives us. And so if you're a Christian here today, this is you. No matter how you feel, no matter how your week has been, you, you can put your name in here. Therefore, since Nigel has been justified through faith, Nigel has peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're not yet a Christian, then no matter how good you feel about your life, how much you might feel at peace, 
no matter how contented you are, then this peace is not yet yours, and you're still at war with God, and, and you really, really need to have this sort of. It's a war that you cannot win. Now, now, this peace with God opens up an entirely new relationship with the one who has made us. This relationship here is referred to as the, the grace in which we now stand. You see that um, in verse 2. And, and here that phrase that the grace in which we stand or the grace in which we've taken our stand really seems to refer to that general sense of God's favor towards us, the benevolence towards us. And what's particularly highlighted here is the idea of access in verse 2. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace. It's the word that would have been used if you were in Hillsborough Castle or in Buckingham Palace, and you were standing out in a corridor in an ante room, and a person came to usher you into the presence of the king. It's that sort of access. You couldn't get there by yourself, but someone could bring you in and give you the right to be there, as it were. And Jesus is the one who brings us into the presence of God. He brings us access. And this is just Again, tremendous news that we have peace with God, we have access to God. Uh, on Monday nights, we're, we're looking at Christianity Explored. One of the things that Rico Tice, who sort of hosts the, the, the videos and the talks, says that if we don't understand the gospel, or sorry, if, we, if we don't think that the gospel, which is really what we're looking at here, if we don't think that the Christian message is the best news we've ever heard, then we have not understood it. That's quite challenging, isn't it? Is this the best news you've ever heard? Or is the idea with, of peace with God just that little bit abstract and it doesn't really capture your heart? Well, keep thinking about it and wrestling with it because it needs to capture our hearts. Now, uh, what do you do whenever you hear great news? Well, you, you, you saw something of that this morning as, as we were looking at... Uh, uh, Exodus, uh, whenever we have a, a great redemption or a great salvation, well, it brings us great joy. We, we, we sing, perhaps. Uh, we we uh, tell other people about it. Maybe we create an Instagram post to bring up some good news story that we want to share. And, and here, that's what we see here. There's just good news. There's rejoicing as a result of this. People have looked at these verses and split them up in all sorts of ways. John Stott lists six uh, ways in which God blesses us through these verses, but I want to follow uh, this evening a little structure that Sinclair Ferguson used where he highlights the little word rejoice. You notice that it happens three times in uh, these verses, and, and so we're going to uh, look at where Paul says we rejoice over certain things. It's the same word as boasting, interestingly. Uh, some of the translations will say we boast about certain things, but it is rejoicing. And uh, we've been told that we've had nothing to boast about by ourselves. Paul said that already in the first chapters. And now, because of Jesus, we've got lots to boast about, to rejoice in. Not in us, but in what God has done. So, let's see what our rejoicing is. First of all, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We see that in verse 3, in verse, end of verse 2, into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, the glory of God has been a little bit of a theme. It's been running through Romans, and we find back in chapter 1 
that one of the marks of people outside before they come to Christ is that we run away from God and we exchange the glory of God for a lie. It also tells us that we, we fall short of God's glory. We exchange God's glory. We deny God His glory. But now that, that God has saved and rescued us, we hope for the glory of God. We need to talk a wee bit about that word hope in the Bible. Hope generally, certainly here, is not a, a sort of a uh, grip your teeth and, and hope it might work out sort of word. You know, I hope I'll have a Ferrari when I'm 56. Well, you never know. Uh, but, but it's not that sort of wish fulfillment type thing. Hope in the Bible is, is something that we, is, that, that, that we know we're going to get, but we just haven't experienced it yet. It's ours. It's like an inheritance or something. We know we're going to get it. It's legally ours, but we just haven't experienced it yet. And Paul says here that we know we will experience the glory of God. Now, what does this mean? Well, John Stott, for example, says God's glory is his radiant splendor, which at the end, when we see him, will be fully displayed. So we're going to see God. We're going to see his glory, the magnificence that he is. Sometimes theologians in the past have talked about this beatific vision, this idea of seeing God and being transformed by that. And we were made for him. And we're going to see him, and in a sense, nothing's greater than that. But, but the Bible says even more than the fact that we're going to see God's glory, it tells us that we'll be changed into it. Somehow we will share in God's glory. Chapter 8, verse 17 of Romans says that. Isn't that amazing that this, this glorious God should hum, somehow share his glory with us? It seems that somehow... That, that, that vision of God and His glory will, will pour out from Him, sweeping over us, as it were, and then sweeping into the whole world that He is in the business of recreating. So, so there is really something amazing ahead of us. Because we have been made right with God, we have a, a welcome with God. We have a future with God. It is a marvelous future. C.S. Lewis beautifully described it in the last battle where he said, every chapter better than the one before. It's ahead of us. You should notice here, by the way, as some people have pointed out, that what God does for us is, is past, present, and future. You know, it, it's, uh, we've been justified by faith that rests on what Jesus has done for us in the past, and, and our justification came, if we're Christians, came at some point in the past, five minutes ago, five years ago, 50 years ago. Uh, then we, we see that, that we stand in the grace of God. So there's something about God's work in our lives in the present. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's something in the future. So what God does for us is past, present, and future. It wraps around us, doesn't it? It doesn't leave any of us untouched or any part of us untouched, neither our histories nor our prospects. So we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We are going to see Him. Then we rejoice also, secondly, in our sufferings. You see, verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Now, this is not what we maybe would have 
expected here in the midst of this sort of good news story, but it is here. And, and, and straight away, we ought to then point out that, that when we see perhaps on our televisions or somewhere, we see those sort of health, wealth, and prosperity preachers popping up and, and saying that if we come to Jesus, things are going to get better and better for us, and that's how we get our Ferrari. Well, we see that, that, that they are not reading the same Bible that you have opened in front of you tonight. We should see that they're not being true to the Word. Jesus told His disciples that in this world they will have trouble. And here these sufferings are, are, are described as, as those in which God will work, certainly, but not necessarily those that He will deliver us out of. Now, there are a certain number of things here that, that Paul says flow from one to the other. So, suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. When I look back at my childhood, I, I am realizing more and more it was a very different childhood to the sort of childhood that children have today. And one of the things that I could happily spend hours doing was setting up dominoes and knocking them over. Do you remember doing that? And I, I used to watch record breakers, and, and uh, Roy Castles would, would uh, show us some great warehouse, and there would be like 100,000 dominoes in it, and somebody would push the first one, and over they would go. And I would try to, try to recreate that on, on my kitchen table, but I only had 12 dominoes. And so it was never quite as effective. But, but I, I knew the principle. You know that if you toppled the first one and you had them lined up properly, there was a certain inevitability in, in terms of how the whole thing would progress. And, and Paul here is really saying something very, very similar. He's saying that just as one domino leads to the next, that there are a number of steps and stages that suffering produces within the Christian. Now, the sufferings that are here are particularly, we should say, the, the sufferings that emerge as someone is following the Lord Jesus. That was particularly the issue for those whom Paul was writing to, Christians at an incredibly hostile time in history, uh, and uh, Nero was the emperor, and so it wouldn't be long before he was uh, lighting up Christians to, to light his garden. But at the same time, what Paul says here about sufferings um, being particularly the result of following Jesus, is applicable in, in many ways to all suffering that comes into our lives. And it's simply to say that, that God is at work in suffering. It's not, it's not meaningless or random. It is doing something, or at least God is doing something in us. He doesn't say He rejoices for His sufferings, but He does rejoice in them because he knows that God is at work. And, and in essence, he is at work to produce more Christ-likeness in them. And, and we, we know this, don't we? So many of you have, have, have told me of difficult times that you've gone through and, and actually how in the midst of it, though you would not seek it, you found the Lord with you in a particular way. And, and even sometimes whenever you don't see it, others around you begin to see how Christ is formed in you more and more. We would not choose it to be this way, but it so often is this way. And, and so Paul is saying here that there is, there is a, a work in the midst of our difficulties. 
And it's not that that is necessarily automatic, I think. There is a necessity for us to look to the Lord in the midst of it. But nevertheless, God is at work. You'll notice here that the last domino, as it were, here is hope. Character leads to hope. And it looks like hope here is that confidence in God that just as He has been with us, so He will be with us. He will not let us go. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to the day of Christ Jesus. God will come through for you. It's that confidence in that. And therefore, our hope is not misplaced. And that's what Paul is at pains to point out in some of these verses, that such hope that God will come through for us, that He will keep us, even at times as if we just feel as we're holding on by our fingernails, that that hope that He will keep us is not a futile hope. And He gives us two reasons as to why that hope is not a futile hope. First of all, He says, for God has poured out His love into us, uh, sorry, verse 5, let me read it properly. Hope does not put us to shame. In other words, it's not futile because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom He has given to us. Now, now this seems to be a reference to the fact that when we become Christians, often, should we say usually, normally, we have some sense of that. Now, there are some times in which we lose our sense of that, but but there is some subjective sense that, that our relationship with God has changed. That, that, that there is a, an openness to us from our Heavenly Father. Uh, we, we maybe became Christians and, and we began to experience joy or peace in a certain way. And, and if we remember that and we begin to think about that, we just know that the, there is a, a welcome from our Heavenly Father. The, the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And the point here seems to be, if God has done that, if He has so assured us of His love now, hope is not going to disappoint us. He's not going to turn around in six months and say, well, look, I know I said that, that you were mine and you were welcome, but things have changed. That's not going to happen with God. God has poured out His love into our hearts by His Holy Spirit, and, and therefore we are His, and we will be His. Hope will not disappoint us. He will come through for us. But then there's a second reason, not a subjective reason, but an objective reason why this hope will not disappoint us and prove futile. And that's because of what Jesus has done for us, and indeed how Jesus did it, and when He did it. And that's because He died for us at a certain point. It's in verses 6 to 10. Let me read them. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Okay, so, so what's happening here? Let's try and remind ourselves what's happening here. Paul is saying to hope in God coming through for us is not futile. Why? Because He's poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, but also because of how Christ died for us. 
He died for us at the right time. Not so much the right time in history, 30 AD or whatever it was, but, but the right time in a sense when we needed him to come through for us. And when did he die for us? Did he, did he die for us whenever we had sort of cleaned up our act or drawn near to him or, or began to show some interest in him? No. He died for us when we needed him to die for us, when we were still sinners, when we were ungodly. And that's exactly what he did. And Paul says this is entirely unexpected and unparalleled. He says here that someone might die for a good person, maybe for a righteous person. Sometimes we think these categories are mixed up, but it looks like a righteous person was someone who had a sort of a, an external righteousness, a sort of a good, uh, upright life. But a good person was someone who had that, but then also had a good heart, as it were, behind it, a sort of a, a through and through good person. And so he says that maybe for an exceptional character, someone might lay down their lives. But Jesus doesn't do that for us. He doesn't look at you and say, wow, what a specimen. He's, he's, he's worthy of my blood. She's worthy of my blood. No, no, he, he says, what a specimen. I know the worst about them. I, I know what they've done and what they will do and what they'll dream of doing. And knowing all of that, I'll die for them. You see, the, the, the sins that Jesus carried, your sins and mine, that he carried to the cross were not some sort of generic sins. You know the way those sorts of sins that you confess in a job interview whenever they say, so tell us about your weaknesses. And you go, well, I'm a bit of a perfectionist. You know? It's not that sort of generic thing that really tries to make us look reasonably good. No, no, no. He, he, he died for the things that were the worst things in your life and in mine. The things that cause us shame. the things that we can hardly admit to ourselves. And the point is, you see, here's the point. If he has done that for you, he's not going to let you go. He's not, he's not going to let you go. See, verses 9, since we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. If while we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. This, uh, from the lesser to the greater, this uh, uh, is one of the key arguments in the way that Paul builds his argument. Uh, 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 how much more? So he says, if God has done this, then how much more will this be the case? If Christ has died for us, how much more will we be confident that he will keep us and save us from the wrath of God? A couple of weeks ago, I had occasion to be up in the Hurst's Auto Complex on the uh, Boucher Road. I don't know if you've ever been there. And uh, I had to go for a coffee and wait for a while. And uh, I, I walked across to a coffee shop and uh, I walked through the avenue with all the really high-end cars, you know, Lotus, Ferrari. I was just checking out what I was going to get for my 56th birthday. And, and then, and Bentley, there was Bentleys there. And, and can you imagine somebody buying a Bentley 
you, 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 play, you play the game. I wonder which the most expensive one is, you know. You look at the sticker price and so on. Can you imagine someone buying a 200,000 pound Bentley? The 200,000 pound Bentleys were the second hand Bentleys, you know. But can you imagine buying the 200,000 pound Bentley and, and the garage phones you up and says, uh, sir, you, you, your Bentley is ready. You just need to bring 180 pounds with you for the road tax. And you never appear. Well, that would be nonsense, wouldn't it? The guys would, would think you were crazy. He's done the big bit. He's paid for the, the 200,000 pound car. The road tax is just, it's like stamps. Well, God has done the big bit, you see, in making you right with him. Keeping you, looking after us, it's not so hard. He'll do it, the Bible says. And so, you see, you can rejoice in your sufferings because God is at work and those things that you fear will break you will not separate you from the love of God because he will keep us. He's not going to let us go. He's done the big thing by saving us in the first place. We can rejoice in sufferings. And the last thing, just in a word, is that we can rejoice in God. You see, uh, at the end of this section in verse uh, 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This little phrase, uh, rejoicing in God, is exactly the same phrase that occurs back in, in Romans chapter 2, where Paul is condemning the Jews for simply assuming that God is on their side. It's that, that sort of idea of boasting. You know, they're boasting in God. Oh, yeah, yeah. God. God and us, we're fine. We're, we're his special people. No problem. And we've done so much for him after all. We, you know, we're, we're Jews. We're, we're religious. We, we, we honor him. We're, we're boasting about God. And Paul is saying, you've got nothing to boast about. Your righteousness is self-generated. But here, though it's the same phrase, interestingly, it's absolutely different. He says at the conclusion of all of this, as he says, none of this is of you. God has done this. It's a gift received by faith. What's the difference? Well, the Jews were boasting, assuming that somehow they owned God. And now we're boasting, amazed that God should take notice of us because none of it is from us. We rejoice in God knowing that he has done for us what we could not do for ourselves, what we did not even begin to seek or contribute to. And we go beyond that even for, for, for what he does for us because Paul here says actually we just rejoice in God. We're not even here rejoicing in God's gifts to us or his salvation. We're just rejoicing in in God. We get to know God. We, we get to have God at work in our lives. We get to be with God in the future. We get God, and so we rejoice in God because there's nothing better than God. There's no one above God. There's nothing more pure than God. And so we rejoice in Him. 
And we get to do that because of Jesus. Through him, we've received reconciliation. It's that idea of peace again, the God bringing the two together that were, that were at, at enmity. Uh, he starts by saying in chapter 5, verse 1, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And he ends in verse 11 by saying effectively, we have peace with God and it's through Jesus Christ. And we, so we rejoice in him. So, 30 minutes later, is it worth being a Christian? What are you going to go into this week? Are you going to remember that it is worth being a Christian? Who are you going to see this week? Who is, who is comfortable and at peace but does not have peace with God? Do you know that it is worth being a Christian and therefore you can tell them? Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.